This is Coda Radio, episode 531 for August 15th, 2023. Hey friend, welcome back to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show. Taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. My name is Chris, and looking at that whole world, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Huzzah. Huzzah. Hello, we did it. We're back. We're podcasting. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's a big show today. I do, too. The audience really stepped up this week. I felt the love. We got some great feedback. And we thought, why not start with a pontification? If you were just starting out today as a developer, and this is a question I think we should throw out to the audience, too, but you and I will answer it for this episode. If we're just starting today as a developer, somebody adjacent to the developer field, like maybe you're in DevOps, what stack, what tech stack would you focus on? And I, I'm wondering if uh, the answer is Swift. <laughs> uh, no, it is not. So I've actually been thinking a lot about this, right? Because this used to be one of our most common emails we'd get. Yeah. And I kind of have two answers. One, I think, is not going to be surprising to people. Um, I'd probably say, so maybe we should set the, the constraints of the game here, right? You can only pick one language to primarily focus on oh dang it yeah so you can't say like you know whatever three languages which is exactly what i was gonna do what you're gonna do yeah (laughs) i would say almost and you know light web front end i think everybody kind of has to do like light html css so those don't count everybody gets those i think the safe one that i that is like obvious is python just because of the ubiquity and the you know, you can do web apps in Python. Hell, you can do games in Python, Pygame. Uh, Python is actually a language used as the DSL for a lot of game engines, right? Like bigger game yeah, engines. Yeah, and I completely agree. Python does seem like... Scripting. Right. Yeah. And it's long future, great community. Is it? Would you, would you tell your kid that? Yeah, I, I probably would. I mean, the funny thing is my kid goes to a thing called CodeWiz. Uh, and in fact, it's starting back up again since school started. And they, they work in Python. They, they do Scratch, and they're That's just... That's fantastic. Because of his age, he, they did Scratch for a year, and they're just getting into, like, very basic, like, Python extensions, right? Like, you know. How great. Yeah. So, but I, I have a kind of a more spicy one. You know, I've been doing the C++ gig, and I've been doing uh, a lot of... I mean, I think I've leaked this multiple times, but we're, doing, but we're adding a GUI front end to Alice, and that's written in TypeScript. Or, you know, obviously, mm. but you know, look, you know what I mean. And I have been very impressed by how TypeScript has evolved and how many places you can use it. And it's relatively performant, you know, given that the other language I'm talking about is, you know, interpreted Python, right? I don't know that if I was, you know, a super green, just wanting to get into the industry, um, maybe had more of an interest in front end stuff, that I wouldn't just go be really deep into typescript it's i mean i i'm gonna catch some flack and i could definitely can't wait to read the youtube comments on this one but i think it's kind of c-sharp as it should have been and it's the gandalf the white of c-sharp amazing so, yeah so typescript was one of the ones on my list i can i can feel the presence of west Payne, and he's channeling closure through me i can feel that he's always channeling closure through somebody yeah, i know uh, it's jeez. I really thought for a second Python too. And then I thought, well, if I was going to talk to my kids, I'll tell you my my cheat answer. My cheat answer was this example that I've recently come across. It's a in browser wallet, mutinywallet.com. Oh, interesting. And it is Rust on the back end, TypeScript and Python also in there, and then it essentially builds a WebAssembly app, and it is incredibly capable. Like it is doing super sophisticated back-end network connections and local browser storage and encryption generation all in this app. And the stack they're using is just Rust, TypeScript, Python, and essentially HTML. You know, and it, and it, it has produced something I've never seen before from a web app. Um, so that's really compelling because a, what the end result is is a progressive web app that on Android they can ship that just looks like an app. And on iOS, you just bring it up in Safari and you completely bypass the App Store. And it doesn't, when you add it as an icon to your desktop, like you can do in iOS, 
And you really wouldn't know it's a web app. They've done an incredible job. And it's kind of starting to change my tune a little bit because honestly, they're running a lot of it locally, Mike. They, 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 they're, you know, it's WebAssembly. Well, that's actually, it's funny you mentioned the progressive web apps and uh, how iOS is kind of slowly but surely gaining support. Whenever I get a new kind of lead in for an enterprise, uh, you know, mobile job, I, unless there's a really good reason, I'm pushing them towards uh, progressive PWAs, mostly in Ionic, which, uh, yeah, TypeScript. And it's, I got to be honest with you, the overhead and hassle of dealing, especially with MDMs for enterprise deployment, just isn't worth it. If you can pull it off as a PWA, Godspeed. <laughs> Right. Like just bypass it all. Just don't even hassle with it. And I think, you know, five years ago or or less, maybe it was uh, the kiss of death to be outside the app store and not be a native app. And I think that's really changing. And when I saw that stack. So awesome. It's so great to see that it's it's really finally coming together in the web apps. And this technology has been here for years. We've talked about it. Oh, yeah. It's really coming together in some of these. We'll see. Good question, and I'd like to hear the audience's answer as well. Uh, you can email us at coder.show slash contact or uh, send a boost in. And if your answer is Swift, go ahead and make your apology for Swift. I, I <laughs> Swift isn't a bad language. It's just uh, one of my primary uh, criteria was, you know, I, I assume that your average 19-year-old getting started was like me when I was 19 and didn't know what the hell he was going to end up wanting to do, basically, right? Uh, and Swift has a big big downside of being non-transferable outside of basically iOS and Mac apps, which is a very lucrative market, like if you get really, really good at it, but it's certainly limiting and it's, uh, so I guess disclosure, right? I used to financially support a project called Vapor, which was a Swift REST API backend similar to like a Sinatra or like a Flask uh, for Python, but that stuff really never took off. There's not a whole lot of you know, server-side Swift going on. In fact, I think IBM had abandoned their effort several years ago. So, All right, well, let's talk about lucrative markets for just a moment because, uh, oh, man, we got, a, we got a doozy of an email that I wanted to read to you here on the pod. It, it comes uh, from listener Steve, and he's basically getting the Oracle shakedown at his hospital. He writes, I love the show. We want to get our thoughts on this recent round of shakedowns. My current company, a nonprofit hospital system with 15,000 employees across several hospitals, was contacted by Oracle last year to audit our Java usage. One thing led to another, and now it's in the hands of the legal team. But the bottom line is, we hardly use Java at all. A handful of our apps by a very small handful of people. But Oracle is demanding we pay X dollars per month per employee, which works out to be about $1.4 million a year. They also want us to back pay licensing for several years, which works out to be about a one-time $7 million payment with ongoing $1.4 million every other year. They want additional money for anything running on servers. There's likely a, form, a few more million there. Now, we're a nonprofit hospital, and fallout from COVID put us 70 to $80 million in the hole each year Woof. for the past two to three years. This seems like extremely predatory behavior by Oracle, not to mention the extremely shady right up there with the patent trolls running countless businesses. Like I remember Richard Stallman warning people not to write Java code 25 plus years ago for this very sort of contingency. And he was right. Thankfully, Steve very helpfully includes some links. So if this is going on with anybody listening, we have some links. And then there's also like what to do. There's like a say no. It essentially starts with an innocent sounding email or call that lands. And if you engage with that outreach, it essentially then results in this audit process. It turns out it, it starts like a, Hey, how's it going? Oracle's checking in, seeing if there's anything we can do. And then it kind of evolves into this heavy handed shakedown. So what are they like trying to trick you into saying something that would trigger you revealing like a license violation? Is that? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, oh. it's even, I think it's just them getting in, and having the initial contact. So it sounds like it starts with some sort of initial sales call, an outreach, and you'll, it'll just be out of the blue in a lot of cases. And they will, they will go to like C-level executives. Then they request some more information once you engage. Then they set up a meeting where the conversation turns and Oracle reveals that they have a bunch of this information and that they 
see that you need to license hundreds, sometimes thousands of processors due to oh a my. few Java installations on VMware, which oh seems to be God. a big target. Then they, re, then, they, then they roll out their big licensing policy that stipulates all the legal things that make them able to do this. And then they start searching for retro, retroactive license violations. And it's mm. like a six-step process they go through. There's a really great website that's set up that just breaks all this down for people that are suffering this. This reminds me of the bad old days of Cute doing this. Yeah. Like they used to do something very similar. Innocent-sounding sales call. And then all of a sudden, well, actually, because you're shipping those tablets, we consider that an appliance. So you have to get our special blah, blah, blah embedded, whatever they called it. Um, I don't believe they still do this. Although I dropped Cute like it was hot for this reason. <laughs> so, yeah, um, the dream of it Java. Sound, it sounds like they're going after hospitals because... They figured out there's a handful at a certain scale. When a hospital gets to a certain scale, there's only a handful of software packages really available to them that are compliant. Mm, sure. And so I think somebody at Oracle figured out that a lot of those are using Java. And so they just decided this is essentially a soft target. And it's, it is predatory because like these hospitals are struggling. And in that case, that was a nonprofit hospital, which sounds like all hospitals should be nonprofit if you ask me. Now, is or is this just business? And this is what you get for choosing the Oracle platform. I mean, RMS warned them. This goes all the way back to Sun, right? The, the problem with the whole Java thing was it was great. It was super cool as long as the dictator was a benevolent dictator, yeah. which Sun was and is why they went out of business, right? Why they had to sell. You know, Microsoft raised this concern back in the, in the 90s about, about, about Java as well. And everybody just said, oh, yeah, pot calling the kettle black and just sort of ignored them. Well, because in some alternate, like, you know, where we all have goatees universe and the mirror universe, Sun could have just, like, been different at one, instead of Sun coming, like, actually, we're just going to be a bunch of jerks. And they could have done this themselves. Um, they chose not to. I do wonder, and I think this is what the problem is, I wonder how hard a migration to open JDK would be, although it probably doesn't matter at this point, because if Oracle claims they can retroactively get money for the past, yeah, that means you're still going to have a legal tussle or some sort of settlement, which part of that settlement is probably going to be you agree to be an Oracle customer for the next five to 10 years. So it also sounds like they've got some little loophole for people using virtualization and they're getting them for extra licensing. That's common. Yeah. On the bigger like VMware stuff, uh, usually that's like a separate license and they're orders of magnitude more expensive than the normal. Like I'm running this on, you know, bare metal. So I guess they're. They're just sending these out in mass. The registers covered it. Some websites have cropped up. There's people that are talking about it. It's so funny, though, because it starts with this sort of friendly email, and it just so quickly turns into this nasty audit where now you owe them millions or you're going to get sued. Right, and, and then Oracle will 100% sue you. Like, what a nightmare. You know, is it, like, think about that from an IT perspective, an operations perspective. You're already overtapped. you got got 100 things going on, mm -hmm. and now you're dealing with this crap, too. And the possible, like, conversation around, well, do we migrate? Like, what do we do here? Because we don't want to pay, you know, half a million dollars or a million and a half dollars every couple of years. I was going to say, it's going to be more than half a million dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is one of those situations where you know the other side knows they basically got you and they're trying to force a settlement, right? I wouldn't be surprised if Oracle does some, some stuff here where they look at your kind of cash flow situation and they basically become a tax on you which is not super uncommon, especially if you're a smaller software company or smaller enterprise, because everybody wants you to pay them something. So, um, you know, the hot, the hot business consultants on YouTube call this value-based pricing, where basically you don't have a price for the product, you have a, well, what's it worth to you, right? So right. You make, which I, I, I get, but is also like super scummy. However, in this case, we are going to have a lawsuit. They get to do things like issue subpoenas and look at records, and that becomes very tough. Because in those settlement negotiations, you know, now I'm not saying this hospital should or would, but you couldn't act like you were less flush than you are to try to negotiate them down. Yeah. Also, also common in the startup world, right? Like if you ever look at these enterprise things, like GitHub used to have one. A thing that you could do, I'm not advocating this, was if your company was slightly above the mark, which is usually a million dollars, or in some cases 500,000, you can do some interesting financial engineering to make sure you get below it 
just for the audit where they check. So you, and that would cut your cost for the software license and the platform by like 80%. I mean, in, in the case of GitHub, you would be talking a thousand instead of like tens of thousands. So, right. Mm-hmm. Not advocating shady stuff, but uh, yeah, Oracle continue to be dicks, huh? Surprise. And you can help take the shady business contracts out of podcasting by just supporting us directly. You can become a member at coderqa.co. I think we did a coderly on sort of the history and story around why we mention Sun so often. And if we didn't, we should. But I'm pretty sure there is a coderly on that. You get a special coderly episode from time to time. It's a great way to support the show directly. And as a thank you, you get an ad-free feed. CoderQA.co to support the show directly or Jupiter.party where you can set your own price and support all the shows. You can also support each individual episode by boosting. Thank you to everybody who boosts. We'll be coming up on those a little bit later in the show. We got some fantastic support. Uh, spoiler alert, smashed our goal this episode, but we'll we'll tell you how much in just a little bit. Uh, if you want to boost in, get Alby.com. Get A-L-B-Y.com. You top it off directly in the app or with, I use the cash app often to top off Alby. Then you visit the podcastindex.org, you find Coda Radio, you can boost from their webpage. Although really, I think the most popular way is to get one of these new podcast apps, newpodcastapps.com. They got a whole bunch of new features, and you can also boost directly within the app. There's just a button right there while you're listening. It's really awesome. And each boost supports the network, editor Drew, and developers of these new podcasting 2.0 apps, as well as the podcast index. And we'll be getting to those in just a little bit. And maybe ChatGPT and OpenAI could use some boosts because it seems, according to a report that's come out in the last week, their daily burn rate is $700,000 and they're on track right now to go bankrupt in 2024. How about that doozy? Never going to happen. No, Microsoft has already bailed them out once. In fact, they're living off of that investment from Microsoft right now. Also, interesting. CEO Sam Altman doesn't own any equity in open AI because of like the shifting from nonprofit to profit, mm-hmm. all that kind of, he just didn't get any equity, which I think is very bizarre. Makes me wonder if he'll really stick around for a long time. You know, I have been playing with CPU based self-hosted large language model, like dashboards that let you load chat GPT's backend. You can load Facebook. You can load all these different ones in there. There's so many now and just basic questions, man, just basic. Like when was Richard Nixon president is a five minute process to get a response. In my heart, he's still president. Well, you know what? Interestingly, it was like 51 or 52 years ago today that he took uh, the states off the uh, gold standard, the final, the final stroke, stroke of the pen. And in his, in, in his announcement, Nixon said it would be a temporary measure. <laughs> 52 <laughs> years later. Aha. Uh-huh. You know, so I loaded it up on a pretty nice Linode. And I mean, we're talking pretty good resources, lots of RAM, lots of CPU. And it is CPU. And it's very slow. So when now when I use ChatGPT and I use Bard, I really appreciate the astronomical amount of GPU compute behind these things. They are monsters. Tens of thousands of servers making this possible. Just so that way you can go in there and ask it stupid questions and you can have it integrate with all these different applications. Yeah, I mean, this is going to fix itself though, right? So will it be OpenAI who figures out the the business model? I don't know. Probably because I don't think, you know, Microsoft's going to hold their chin above water. I pretty much indefinitely, right? I I don't see Microsoft letting them drown. And I'm not sure I would categorize this as a bad thing because they are effectively the leader in the space. They could charge more money, right? They they haven't really aggressively tried to generate revenue in any real way. No, I know they have the like $20 subscription and you can subscribe to the uh, picture generation thing. But it, it seems like this is one of those situations where the headline is spicy and, you know all hail the CNBC anchors who are going to their pants over this. But in reality, if you know how these software businesses actually work, they just need to turn on the money switch. Well, Sam Altman says, or somebody, some top from the top, the report quotes somebody from the top that is kvetching that they can't make money because a customer X, that's all they would say. They wouldn't say which customer was actually the decline 
for ChatGPT's website traffic because they say their largest customer, X, is doing API cannibalization. And so people are using their product instead of going to ChatGPT's website and they don't see a way out of it. This, you know, like this is their model. And if large customer X has to be Microsoft and the Bing search and all the crap. The biggest customer X is obviously Microsoft. It's got to be, right? Because if it was anybody else, they just cut them off. But Microsoft yeah. is keeping them above water. Yeah. Do you feel that they've been embraced, maybe? No. I, I, oh, for Microsoft? Yes. Yeah. I think this, though, is, this is ridiculous. The idea that other companies' products are so successful using open AI's APIs that they're driving traffic away is massively presumptuous. It, it, it presumes that companies have not only, A, built functional products that provide value, but that, B, somehow word of mouth has so massively spread, like some sort of, like, you know, meme on the Internet. People have switched over to this other product that is doing API cannibalization. It's, it's ludicrous. Not if that product is being, yeah. Yeah, no, it's just people tried it. It was gimmicky, and it do- it doesn't actually deliver on the world-altering promise that he so that Sam so espoused before Congress critters, the White House, and everyone in front of the media. Well, also, I, like I have a real-world example here, right? We integrated uh, Alice with ChatGPT, or I should say, Alice can use ChatGPT's Open API, right? And ninety, I would say, five percent of the time, at least, if you're the user, I turn that off. Hmm. Because you are better off with the pre-programmed sequences that we have for your specific stuff and the inferences we make than whatever random chat GPTs are going to try to do to your data. Yeah. Now, having said that, I am never taking that off the Alice marketing website. Well, no, I mean, I could see some customers might want it. It gets them in the door. Nextcloud is integrated, stable diffusion image generation, and, and you know, uh, they use it now in Nextcloud office to generate templates there's some uses there there's some uses there and i mean my point isn't that it's useless my point is the thing custom built for their use case tends to be better right exactly and and the most useful thing so far is just the sexiness of getting people to sign up for the uh sales call right yeah you should put block well if it was a year ago you put blockchain Blockchain yes no the thing the thing that i think will have a bigger impact and this is why i'm actually more excited long term about the self-hosted stuff is domain expertise large language models something that knows your domain in and out it knows mm-hmm. like and this is applicable to enterprises all the way down to at home like i have home assistant home assistant's working on the year of voice and it's better than siri already and they're six months into it and the reason why it's better because it is very domain specific. It only manages my home assistant. It only knows about the things I've named in there. I can set custom phrases and it only controls that world. It doesn't, it doesn't try to integrate and be the smart assistant that can talk to the rest of the world and give me the news and the weather. It just has one problem to solve. And so therefore it just is very consistent. And I think that's going to be true for large language models as well. You'll let them loose on your databases and on your enterprise They'll be running on your own infrastructure, hopefully one day on ARM chips and for power. And, you know, it will know what you're talking about when you say a specific, you know, job or project name. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, have a, I so my son does karate. Right. And with the new school year, the karate dojo, they periodically like to change the schedule, which I am not good at keeping track of things. As we can see from the first five years of the show, if you DMing me, hey, we have a show in 10 minutes. So I have been showing up to the karate studio at the wrong days and times. It would be amazing if I had just like an AI in a box that just lived on my internal network, but that could call out to their really, really horrendous Facebook calendar thing that they use and say, oh, you know, the sensei changed it for this month to three o'clock instead of 3.30. So let me change your calendar schedule where you block it out to take them for karate, Right. That would save me a lot of hassle because I'm paying for the service and basically haven't gotten it in two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I am. Time is hard. Time is hard. Time, time, time zones. Time zones shouldn't exist. That's time math is the worst. Yeah. You know, makes me want to cry. I'm going to give a quick shout out. I can't find links for it right now, but the Piper Project and the Whisper Project. These are one is a text to speech and one is speech to text. 
and their community is rapidly evolving these. They're open source, self-hostable speech-to-text and text-to-speech systems that you can run and integrate to your projects. And they're so awesome. I've been playing around with them for like six months. It's Piper and Whisper. And if anybody in the chat room can find links to them, I'll try to get them in the show notes. Here's another potential headwind for your buddy Sam Altman, though. According to sources at the Financial Times, Saudi Arabia has bought over 3,000 NVIDIA H100 GPUs and somewhere around another 100,000 or so earlier in the year. And now it appears that essentially all of the NVIDIA GPU cores that are used for AI jobs in data centers are sold out until 2024. Whoops. And now um, a new report shows that smaller startups that are trying to acquire GPUs for AI can't acquire them. So they basically have no choice but to use AWS and Azure and others because they just, they're not going to be available again. NVIDIA's out. That sucks. Yeah. Yeah, that seems bad, right? That's really bad. Uh, not, not as impacted, but AWS's CEO, uh, Adam Slipsky, said again and again and again in an interview with The Verge that uh, they were snapping up as many NVIDIA GPUs as they could because they've been, they knew this was coming and that they, they bought a whole bunch this first quarter. They're just aping into GPUs over at AWS. Here we go again. Here we go again. Yeah. You know? Here we go again. We, we, ju- we just chilled out from the crypto GPU run. Now yep. we're going <laughs> to do the AI GPU run. It, it just seems like the business we should have been in is selling GPUs. No kidding. Although I wonder, you know, Amazon is working on their own, their gravity arm mm-hmm. chips, and uh, Google has their own AI chips. Apple is working on their own chips. NVIDIA is the go-to for everybody who doesn't seem to have their own chip solution. And some of these, like Amazon and Google, I don't think they're actually at a place where they have, you know, uh, uh, these things are not popular enough where they can stop buying NVIDIAs too, so they're still dependent on NVIDIA. But NVIDIA has just massively benefited from this rush. And I was watching the financial news this morning, and they're essentially, their position is, is that NVIDIA and other, which NVIDIA is now considered an AI stock, and other AI stocks have to rally in order for the S&P to continue, like to continue to go up. Like they are holding up the market. It's the rallies based on these stocks and people are pretty bullish, but I don't know how exactly this hype cycle continues. If we run out of GPUs, there'll be certain winners and certain losers for sure. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. And we should probably note here that Apple bought out like all of TSMC's three, three yes. centimeter production capacity. <laughs> yes. Like literally all of it. So that yeah. seems like you can't discount how much Apple being the uh, titan in the room here, uh, just in terms of scale, right, uh, is is significant. That may backfire though, because the rumor that goes along with that, of course, is that the next iPhone price is going to go up a notable amount. Everything's and going up. I just it's a bad time to raise the the price of that iPhone. I think. Sales are already declining. You raise the price to like $1,500 for the base model or something like that. And I think that doesn't sell. Do you know what, though? They're they're going to, they probably have enough people on those either carrier or the Apple update plans that they just hide the price in there. They up it a little bit a month. You know, that is a great point. I think in an earnings call, their most recent earning call, in fact, they said that something like half of iPhone users in the States are on some sort of plan where they don't pay for the price up front right they're they're effect- you're effectively subscribing to your phone right yeah that's a good point all right so we'll see time will tell because that's only like a few weeks away tailscale.com slash coder that's where you go to get a free account for up to 100 devices it's a great way to support the show tailscale is a zero config vpn that you can get up and running on your devices in minutes simple secure and built on WireGuard. And it lets you easily manage access to your private resources, quickly SSH into your devices on your network, and of course, work securely from anywhere in the world. I run it on my mobile devices. I run it on my VPSs, my VMs. There's even TailScale for your containers. And for the platforms that you can't install TailScale on, you can do subnet routing, and they allow up to 100 subnets on the free account. TailScale is built on top of WireGuard. See, the devices connect directly to each other using WireGuard's noise protocol encryption. It builds out a mesh network with the best VPN security in the biz. Each machine talks directly to each other. That's why they can give you up to 100 devices for free, because your machines are talking to each other. 
They're providing the magic to get it all going. And then the machines, they talk to each other. They also have really nice things like Tailscale Send. That way you can send files between all your Tailscale systems, regardless of OS. I throw it on my family machines to do remote log into my kids' systems when they need tech support. I throw it on my VPS system. So essentially, we have a private management mesh network across our data centers. I have my private systems behind Tailscale. So all of my syncing for all my mobile devices, that's done over Tailscale. Any of my private transactions, anything might have to do with finances, anything like that, I route that over Tailscale. Even when I'm traveling, I know I'm secure. It's always on on my mobile device as well. It's so simple to get set up. And once you start using it, first week, it'll just be really, oh, this is nice. And a couple of weeks after that, you'll start using it in new ways. And then a few months after that, you'll find it's really changed the way you do networking. So go try it and support the show. Head over to tailscale.com slash coder. It is such a great product. You're going to love it. And you can get it for free for up to 100 devices and support the show at tailscale.com slash coder. We talked about Zoom using your face and your voice to train their AI models in the future. After they updated their terms of service, the internet exploded. And it took them a few days. But by late Sunday, Zoom's chief operating officer was trying to turn the volume down on Hacker News trying and failing, jumping in on the comments and getting skewered. That's a mistake. And then on Monday, they clarified their terms of service, saying that uh, they won't be using your information. They will not use audio, video, or chat customer content to train artificial intelligence models without your consent, is the quote. So the operative phrase is, without your consent. Yeah. Right. Become a Zoom Plus subscriber and automatically opt in it'll be even dumber than that like want these new fancy blurred backgrounds and audio corrections so you really seem more professional on your calls just agree to our enhanced terms of service right if you want to take advantage of ai mm-hmm. of zoom's new ai features which will improve the call the quality of your call and do auto summarizations for your meetings yeah people are going to turn that on i gotta be honest i i, I wish i could get better transcripts for my calls yeah I know if you could if you could have that come out in a nice readable format where it does a summary of the general topics covered and who spoke. I mean, you could even have it give you a report of who spoke for how long and it it won't mess it up. It won't mess up the speaker names because it knows from which session that voice came from. So it'll have a name to the voice so it could actually assign speaker names to the transcript. It'd be pretty compelling, actually. I could see a lot of companies turning that on. It could tell you who's running Magic Arena in the background of the call. I mean, you know. <laughs> They could already tell that, actually. Oh, crap. Yeah. uh, Unless you use it on Linux in a flat pack, uh, basically every other OS you run it on, they can tell what other processes are running on the box. So much for the sandboxing there, Apple. (laughs) Uh, You know, the other thing that's maybe in the background here is Zoom has kind of been in trouble with regulators, concerned about other privacy and security practices in the past. And they're currently operating under a Federal Trade Commission consent order dictating in which ways they must improve security practice their practices to protect user privacy. And this is obviously a privacy issue. Not a good time to run afoul of those kinds of things. So I think that may have also played a role in the, in the walk back. Well, and the, a, a key point here is also like most, or I should say most, I, I can only speak for my, my jurisdiction. Uh, Hillsborough County, Florida courts still use Zoom for hearings for like non like serious matters where no one can get arrested, right? just like dumb stuff, right? Like you're, you're doing a hearing to like get a permit or you're, you know, it's a family hearing, but it's not a hostile one or it's the million dumb little things it could be. And I could see the court, you know, the judiciary being very mad to find out that Zoom was like harvesting the data. No kidding. Yeah. And, and, uh, telemedicine. I, the only thing I think that they could get me to turn it on the only thing that I could possibly conceive that would be so beneficial would probably be if, if I could do an AI avatar where I could turn my camera actually off, but they would I could still sit there and nod and smile like I have to do for an hour with my mic muted. Uh, that would be nice. And I wouldn't have to do that process. Uh, all right, shift gears for a moment because we have to talk about this in the show before we wrap it up. Sam Bankman-Fried is actually in jail. Now, he was on bail, but of course he had to go and screw it up. Uh, He got a computer, and he set up a VPN, and shortly after that happened, just coincidentally, funds that in theory only Sam might have access to started moving on the blockchain. 
and then quickly got moved into mixers and cashed out. Perhaps several million dollars worth, if I recall. And then not too long ago, Mr. Bankman, who was living it up at a nice million dollar home at his parents' house, had a New York Times reporter over where she sat down and went through the diary of Caroline's, his ex, and also uh, one of his co-conspirators at Alameda and at FTX. And he went through and confirmed certain sections of her diary that were clearly going to make her look bad, which the court believes and is correct was witness tampering because she was one of the witnesses. In and the also case. just super scummy, right? I mean, come on. Yeah. The girl's diary. It's like, even to this, even to this day, the guy just thinks he can get away with anything. I, I, I have like a question. I know he has lawyers, but has he ever spoken to them? <laughs> every lawyer I've ever met has been like, all right, here's what you're going to do. Step one, shut up. Right. Just, don't talk don't about say anything. Don't Just say don't anything. Say, yeah. you, you, I think he his initial lawyer he fired because he was going, remember really early on, he was going on and doing an apology tour. He was really sorry how it wasn't his fault. Remember? Right. And the lawyer was like, can you shut the fuck up? Yeah. And he fired him. Yeah. I mean, so now he's in federal prison. Yeah. Good. good. Yeah. And um, here's the other one. Here's the other kind of big piece of news. And I, I can't believe it. Because remember this BS that the U.S. had to drop all campaign fraud charges because otherwise the Bahamas wouldn't extradite him. And so the weak, small, tiny U.S. capitulated to the powerful Bahamas, the military-industrial complex of the Bahamas, and said, okay, we'll drop all of the, finance, the campaign finance charges if you will extradite him. And so they dropped all those charges, and he was extradited. And so, you know, Congress critters were let off the hook. And now it turns out that's back on. It sounds like they're going after him for more than $100 million in political campaign contributions before the 2022 U.S. midterm elections. Prosecutors on Monday said they have amended the indictment and accused the 31-year-old billionaire, former billionaire, of directing two FTX executives to evade contribution limits by donating to Democrats and Republicans and conceal where the money came from. Quote, he leveraged his influence in turn to lobby Congress and regulatory agencies to support legislation and regulation he believed would make it easier for FTX to continue to accept deposits and grow. In other words, just like you and I speculated on this show, he was working to build a regulatory moat with Congress, people like um, Waters, and with the SEC sitting chairman, Gary Gensler. This comes right back to the sitting SEC chairman. He was working with this scammy scumbag. We don't know exactly what Gary agreed to, but it's clear that was Bankman's angle, and that's exactly what we speculated. And now federal prosecutors have laid it out in an indictment exactly as we said. We laid it out that way because it was super obvious. It also shows you, once again, it's another demonstration of the two justice, justice systems at work because he should have been in jail all along. When he got that laptop and used a VPN and funds started moving around and he claimed he was watching football, even though it wasn't football season, it was bullcrap. He was VPNing into the FTX servers and moved funds that only he had access to in the wallet. I, I just want to say, like, the, the level of chutzpah here. Yeah. You got off with them dropping a bunch of charges because withering naval might of the Bahamas intimidated the U.S. Mm-hmm. And then you came home decided to go on a PR campaign for some reason. <laughs> then after that, you felt the need to take your ex-girlfriend's diary passages and basically try to embarrass her. So, because she's testifying against you? Yep. But you weren't done there. Oh, no. You had to install a VPN, which I'm amazed you're even allowed to have one if you're on, uh, you're on bond for you know technology-based crimes. That seems... I would think you not only would you not have a VPN, you would have like monitoring software on your computer or be forbidden to use a computer. You decided to move money in an inappropriate, allegedly inappropriate way, right? Which is the very, th one of the very things you were indicted for. <laughs> it, it just seems like, does, does he not realize that like prosecutors almost never lose cases? You know, and I, I've only seen this reported in, a, in I, I don't know, one source. I don't know if I can confirm this, but 
I read that he actually has been given special access to a laptop while in prison, too. That's wild. If, if that's true. It's, which... two, it's two different justice systems, man. Two different systems. And the fact that he's only now going to jail after clearly violate, like that stuff with Caroline went down months ago. And the VPN stuff where he accessed funds and moved stuff on the blockchain happened maybe six months ago. And he's only now going to jail. He should have never been let to go home into his parents' house, and he should have never been allowed to have a computer, and he should have never been allowed to have visitors. No, he should have gotten bonded on violent crime, right? You, you know, we don't need to lock everybody up, but it's the computer stuff, yeah. And honestly, the the minute he started with this bullshit about uh, Caroline, that that is witness intimidation, witness tamper. I really think there's something else going on here because well, someone's going to save him. Well, so they're indicting him for $100 million of campaign contributions. But they say in the indictment, he ordered people to do it. But they they just, in the prosecutors, when they go to refer to these people, they just say, quote, straw donors. And they never name names of who these people were and who was, who was, who was moving the money around. Why? Why, are we, why aren't we indicting these people? Why are, we, why are we protecting these people too? They've got proof that these people knew what they were doing was wrong and that Sam's specific instructions, perhaps, maybe. So, so there's, there's a funny parallel here. I, uh, I recently moved, and apparently I didn't fill out the mail forwarding stuff fast enough. Someone got a piece of mail and decided to open an AT&T account and finance an iPhone. I, of course, flagged that out as fraud. Now, that was a week ago. What do you think the local sheriff's department decided to investigate before approving the claim? You? Me. To make they're sure thinking it was fraud that you that weren't I buying an iPhone and then trying to get away with it. Trying to flip it, right. Like, I guess that's the thing. Even with the sheriff's deputy being like, yeah, okay, this is obvious. You're right. This is identity theft, whatever, which I had to convince him of. I had to, like, have my, like, this is my new lease. I didn't live there for a month. This is when the mail forwarding started. You can see there was a gap, right? You can see what happened here. Um, and I had to do the whole, like, life lock thing, which is a pain in the ass. AT&T still will not, one, terminate the account, stop trying to charge me, but they can't charge me because they don't have a valid credit card. So they're, we're in this dispute where there's like threatening to ding my credit, right? It is the craziest situation that I just know if I was someone, you know, a little more well-known in the area, I probably could have had resolved in a day. But because I can't get anybody from AT&T on the telephone, I have to do this all via correspondence. And they are, for whatever reason, very upset about this iPhone 14 that somebody bought. And gosh darn it, you know, they, uh, they're not going to take the bath. Like this doesn't happen a hundred times a day, right? That's the thing too. It's like, how do you guys not have this figured out in a process here that works? It's constantly happening. Well, it's stupid. They let somebody go on the internet, pay $35 somehow, get an iPhone 14. What they did is they shipped it to the old address. How do I know? Because I went to the old address and I saw the open box and I saw the paperwork that came with it. And this is the best part. My name is misspelled. But somehow AT&T's apparently Bahamian level uh, security system did not realize when they did the whatever credit check they supposedly did that it, the name was wrong. Man, that's so annoying. Yeah, I've I've had some similar kind of shenanigans where some fraud led to uh, my account getting froze, which then led to a credit card payment failure, which then led to like multi-year battle with a credit card company. Well, I'm not even an AT&T customer. So like the, the, the challenge here is all they have to threaten me with is like they'll ding my credit, which I already sent the police report to the credit agencies. I'm like, hey, it's bull****. So, hmm. yeah. Yeah, man, it stinks. Yes, uh, but if I was Sam Bakeman Freed, they would actually send me a new iPad and iPhone. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. probably put me up in a Bahamian resort. No offense to the Bahamas. But and, and apologize for the inconvenience of it all. Right, we're so sorry. The president of AT&T would call me and would bring me some Hendrix. We'd have a great time. <laughs> all right, well, let's pick it up. Boost Because we got some great boosts, including our baller boost of this episode. <laughs> which uh, shattered our goal. Ross comes in with 1,020,000 sats using Podverse. And he says, I'm sending this boost, but it's frustrating. <laughs> and I know, I know that with the first initial setup process can be very frustrating depending on the route you take. You know, I'm also always a little hesitant to recommend a browser extension 
to do this. However, uh, Albi is open source, and I've uh, I've met the co-creators, and I also think if you're, you know if you're keeping, like I don't know if I'd keep. Essentially, my cutoff would be any amount of money that I would feel bad about losing, right? And then anything above that, you know, you don't keep in a browser extension. It's sort of my uh, my thinking. But uh, Ross says that a simple form on the JB website where I can enter a boost amount and then a message and scan a QR code to send it. I don't want to have to trust random apps and sites. That's something we've been kicking around. So the thing that's tricky there is the boost, the way it gets the identifying information so it knows you're sending to Coda Radio and what episode that you're sending it. It's all from the RSS feed. So the widget needs to be reading the RSS feed to get the value block information. But that is getting easier, and there's more and more tooling, so I'll probably look at it again. And then he writes in with a question for us, Mike. He says, how do indie devs managing services sleep at night? I see a lot of tech stacks post-describing maybe a single droplet, maybe one VPS, and maybe a daily database backup. I'm just paranoid about losing data. I want redundant everything and continuous backup so I can sleep well. But that means paying AWS prices. Should I just embrace a more YOLO attitude to data and uptime? Should I stop worrying about backing up logs? What do you think, Mike? Uh, it depends on a case-by-case basis, right? Is it, I mean, you don't want to spend a fortune on just, you know, unnecessary redundancy. Or I should say unnecessary redundancy that's actually not mission critical, Right. Uh, should you YOLO everything on a $5 droplet? Probably not. <laughs> I mean, no. I personally do like keeping some backup of logs, but I don't keep indefinite till the end of time backups, which is a way to keep your storage costs down in the cloud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It depends. I mean, I don't use AWS because the value prop for me is they are too expensive. Uh, yeah, like a Linode or a DO is a, is a much more cost-efficient solution. Having said that, when the cases come up, I've done a bunch of SUSE Enterprise and uh, stuff like that. That definitely raises your cost structure pretty significantly. Yeah, I mean, I do like to have some backups. You can also offload some of your more challenging stuff to, I forgot what Linode calls there, but, but all of these systems have like a cold flat storage thing that's cheaper than actual hard disk space if you want to do logs or whatever. Yeah. If, if you can do your benchmarking well enough and figure out what you actually need in the majority case, then you can start making little trimming decisions to save money. I'll tell you our, our philosophy here, Ross. Now, I think Mike's right. It's The reason why it's sort of use case specific is because certain customers have a very low threshold for outage and certain customers have a higher threshold. And uh, the way that I think you kind of make these more YOLO setups work is by having reproducible infrastructure so you can reproduce the rig pretty quickly. So you're not spending two to six hours just getting the machine set back up. And then the data lives separately from the machine and it lives separately from the application. And everything's kind of a module. Your OS, your application, your data, it's all separated out. And so each piece is sort of being managed. Now, maybe some people are only doing one backup. Maybe some people are doing hot copies. That's all all use case specific. But I think where some of this comes from is the infrastructure is now getting deployed as code, right? It's part of a function of an overall project. It's not the project. And so how you manage that, how quickly you can spin that up and how quickly you can recover, I think are all user specific, but you have different degrees in there. If for you, you want hot copies, then like in the case of Linode, what I do is I just set up a Linode VPS in one data center and I set up a VPS in another data center. And I either use object storage as a central data store or I use some sort of replication system on the back end. And that's from anything from ZFS file system copies to like sync thing to, you know, database replication. Like you can you can really kind of noodle that down. So I don't know if I mean, yeah, it is more risky than the old setups I used to build for sure. But the cost difference is night and day. And operationally speaking, the systems are extremely reliable. I mean, seriously reliable in the case of Linode. They're not a sponsor of the show anymore, and I, I, I still say that. Ross, thank you. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for persevering through the frustrations of the new boost system. The whole thing's new, right? That's that's part of why we're doing it is we're trying to help use it and grow it because the listeners to Jupiter Broadcasting are of a more technical variety, so it starts with us. We're the early adopters. We work out the edge cases, and then the more user-friendly applications get built. And the one thing that I have to say is in, like, the 14 months we've been doing boosts, the level of application development is beyond anything I ever expected. The pace is absolutely impressive. And I really appreciate your support. 
You really made my morning. Marchie comes in with 74,332 sats. I hoard that which your kind covet. So he says, I can't help but feel bad for the maintainer of MOQ while simultaneously ruling, ruling his incredibly poor judgment. As a dark matter dev of our .NET shop, I made extensive use of MOQ for its unit tests, though we've replaced it now. Donating, being asked to donate, was certainly not off the table. I think the biggest failure was really the rollout. Clearly engaging with the community for a temperature check was required, and it didn't happen. That's true. He burned out before he got to that point. Maybe there's a way for the maintainer to pull this back, though. I fear the social capital is already eroded beyond the point of no return. In case you haven't seen the latest drama, he links us to what is going on. And there's some stack exchange hoopla. And man, if this isn't, a st- you know, these are stories that I really, I debate if we should cover anymore because it's the kind of the same old story in a lot of ways, but there's always differences with each one. But that classic, classic story, it's just not a sustainable job for an open source developer. They burn out. Yeah, it's, it's uh, we're over a decade of covering this kind of thing. It's really, it's hard to watch. Yeah. And it's, it's even just, there's not a common language for everybody to use. There's not a common way to ask. There's not a common way to pay. It's just a mess. And then on top of that, you get people that start something as a hobby and then it, you know, gets really serious and life happens. We feel it. And thank you. Uh, thank you though, for making us aware of it. That's something I'll follow up on. Noob Steve comes in with 50,000 sats. B-O-O-S-T. He says, Hey guys, I keep meaning to boost in, but I have been forgetting. So, I'm starting a side hustle LLC. I don't typically use Google products if I can help it. Is there something better for a small single person business? Mike, you always say it's too late to jump ship from Google. But if you did jump ship, what would you use? Would you spin up a Linode box and self-host email and put it on a website and call it a day? Is it just worth the money to pay Google's? As always, thanks for the show. Uh, I don't think I would self-host. That's, uh, I, there's a lot of better tools out there than there was when I made this decision way back when. But it's just not something I would be super interested in doing. I certainly wouldn't pick Microsoft because I find their stuff a little overly just annoying to, to administer. I would probably end up back at Google. I mean, yeah, unless I did something really like new and edgy. Like, I know, hey... The uh, the DHH email thing has some kind of enterprise corporate offering, but really the the value prop of Google for work is really good, right? Anything that's not dev, I'm effectively doing in Google, and I'm not paying a ton of money for it. So yeah, you get all the you do get all the Google apps too, and the my all my my whole virtual conferencing stuff. I, I, I occasionally I'll use the Google Voice stuff and have a telephone number that's separate from my cell phone. Yeah. And if you're going to have a company or a project website, you know, it's you can manage the YouTube channel from that. Yeah, we have sign a YouTube channel people. that I keep yeah. forgetting we have. It is, it is a, I think, a competitive product at a fair market price. However, I bet there's people listening right now that are screaming fast mail into their mm. podcast player. You can get, like, email, calendar, and contacts for three bucks a month per user at fast mail. And then they have like a $5 a month plan and they have like really pro options at $9 a month. And Fastmail is really solid. The audience loves Fastmail. I wish Fastmail would sponsor, to tell you the truth, because it's one of the companies I would I would be probably comfortable promoting. But then also, I'm a personal user of ProtonMail and they also offer all this range of services. If it's just you, it's probably not a bad way to go if you're concerned about security. Fastmail is nice because it is really well loved, but so it's obviously a pretty good service. But also, I think it'd be easy for you to grow and expand if you wanted to add multiple mailboxes and people down the road. Yeah. So you might check out Fastmail. No no uh, affiliation there. Not actually a customer. But I've heard such great things from the audience. All right. Ben S. comes in with 31,337 sats. Nice. From the podcast in- index. He says, here's my monthly subscription boost. I just want to say I never minded your ads because they tended to be relevant. That said. I suggested advertising with Jupiter to our marketing manager, and while they were initially interested, he gave up because he couldn't immediately find stats on the audience size or whatever. I'm just a dev, so what can I give a marketing guy to make him see the value? Yeah, it's not very often or common that people will put their numbers on their website. Um, it You can do it or do rough numbers. I don't know. I've debated that. I don't really think there's any value in it because how do you know I'm telling you the truth? I think if I were actually going to get into that, I'd probably use something like op3.dev op3.dev which is a public podcast metrics tracking database but i don't want to be the first guy to uh stick his d in the box if you know what i mean but yeah there's a lot of risk in that too right 
Yeah, yeah. There's there's also this weird kind of like shows in our orbit get jealous if they if they you know people it just creates tension between our friends and whatnot as well. So it, it's just it, there's a lot of reasons, personal ones, friendship ones, and also business strategic reasons. But yeah, I, I don't know. Things are changing. You never. Know. I don't know. I, I I don't think the drama is worth it, but. Because you could also have that conversation privately, right? If somebody, if yeah, they really care. That's that's exactly what we, we engage over email. Chris at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And then I have a good discussion with them. And if they seem serious, then, you know, we proceed. You know, it's funny because it's kind of like software pricing in a way, right? If uh, if you list up, and I learned this the hard way, if you list a price on your website, that really just becomes the negotiating point. And as I learned with the first version of Alice. Uh, it turns out large enterprises use a lot of freaking data and hosting costs, and you don't want to necessarily sell them the same $4,000 license. <laughs> you might need to charge them more to pay your goddamn bandwidth. So, yeah. There you go. That's from from Mike's mouth to your ears, audience. He speaks the truth. And I'm going to get this wrong, one wrong because it's the name of like a Japanese novel series, but Kurosia comes in with 22000 666 sats. Quaka waka, it's a treasure. Yippee! He's using Podverse, and he writes, In 529, you were talking about how people are pearl-clutching about large language models clearing out the community. Remember the, that, that blog post we read that the guy said it was going to collapse free software? I think you guys are right. It's going to bring more people in than it will clear out. Suing large language models for using free software isn't uh, going to solve the problem. These are inference machines there are lawyers that have advised micro if microsoft loses its copilot copilot battle they will consider foss to be tainted devs are going to choose to eat over contribute to if forced so i follow what he's saying what he's saying here is that we should be paying more attention to this microsoft copilot lawsuit because it may set precedence and then if it sets precedence in the wrong direction it may hinder uh open contribution to large language models maybe i um i'd like you to expand on that because maybe maybe or maybe not yeah yeah i don't know golden dragon comes in though with a row of mcducks things are looking up for old mcduck coming in on fountain i for one offer my body whoa for the tech and ai takeover <laughs> hashtag posthumanism on the business and revolution side of things if we could get our blogs away from those miserable ads and show real value that would be my goal value for value blogs yeah the golden dragon's been experimenting with boosts for blog posts Something to go look into, I think. Uh, and then we're going to wrap it up here with a Hunnigan coming in with 20,000 sats. Great insights into MS's API doc scam. And, uh, oh, Hal also no noted that the Nostra community is working on some tools and answering the security questions that we raised recently on the show. And Altar boosted in just with no message, but with 10,000 sats. So here is our totals. Pretty awesome. We had 11 total boosters. So 11 people today made the production of this show profitable, right? Because what we've been trying to do with these goals is start to slowly replace what one of the sponsor slots earned. And we haven't really gotten there yet, except for today we did it. And it was really made possible by just 11 people. Out of all of the tens of thousands of people listening, 11 people stepped up and made it possible over 18 boosts because some were sent in multiple times. And that brought in 1,262,715 sats. That is a worth a Sonic ding, too. Good old Sonic ding. I say that's fantastic. We don't unlock the Sonic for anybody. If you'd like to boost in, go get Alby, getalby.com. Then go over to the podcast index and uh, find Coda Radio on there or try out a new podcast app. A new podcast apps.com. Lots of cool features coming in there, including some new stuff for JB Podcast. Mr. Dominic, where should people go this week when they want a little more you or they want to see what you're up to? Go to alice.dev uh, at Dominico on Twitter or find me on LinkedIn. I have been more active on LinkedIn than Twitter, but every once in a while there's a meme that I can't resist tweeting. That's, that's, what, that's what old uh, Uncle Elon's hoping. That's what it's for. <laughs> He's like, you know what? I'm just going to go with memes now. <laughs> All right. You can find me. I'll say at our Matrix chat room, coder.show slash Matrix. You can always join the live chat there. It's one of the uh, many ways you can uh, give us feedback. Of course, there's coder.show slash contact. And those boosts and a big shout out to our members, coderqa.co. We really appreciate you. Links to what we talked about today are in our show notes. Yes, you can find those on the web. It's a website at coder.show slash 531. They really should be in your podcast app too. Although I don't know where you're listening. Maybe you're listening on the web. That's why we have a website, coder.show. 
It's easy. You'll find our subscribe links over there, our contact form over there, and our past episodes. Plus, there's a whole network of shows over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And I invite you to join the show live. We're doing it on Tuesdays now at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, over at jblive.tv. And join the chat room then. Give us your live feedback and help title the show. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Coda Radio Program. We'll see you back here next week.